Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we give You praise, we give You glory, we give You thanks that You have made a way for us, that You have established a path of salvation for us. We thank You, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that You work on our behalf, that You, O Son, came into this world, was enfleshed, and have been known in the flesh, that You might take your, our sins upon Yourself. And we thank You, O Spirit, for pouring, for being poured upon us, for giving us new life through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. You, O Spirit, have enlivened our hearts, enlightened our minds, opened our eyes and our ears that we might hear and know the word of truth. And so continually guide us, O God, that we would be drawn up to Yourself, that we would be made new always, that we would be refreshed and brought into the joy of this salvation, the joy of this redemption, (coughs) always. And that You, O Lord, would be honored and given glory through our lives. All of this we ask through Your Son, O Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today is Trinity Sunday. I said that already, but it bears repeating over and over again. Today is Trinity Sunday. On this day, we step back and we reflect on the reality of who God is in Himself. It's easy for us to think that the Trinity is not that important of a doctrine. It's a confusing doctrine after all. Aren't those confusing doctrines ones that just divide people unnecessarily? That they keep people from just simply doing what Jesus told them to do. But of course, the difficulty comes in and it's like, but if God is not a trinity, then why should we listen to what Jesus tells us to do because we're supposed to follow God? God alone is the one true God. God alone is the one that we follow. But it might be said, well, Jesus was speaking the same words that God spoke in the Old Testament about obedience, about doing what we need to be doing. But again, that question comes up, why should we do it because Jesus said so? It was on His authority, in fact, throughout the Gospels that He commanded us to act, that He commanded us to do. It wasn't on the authority, authority of God the Father. In so many cases, He would say, this is what I say to do. You have heard it said, but I tell you, He says. But of course, in the Gospel of John, Jesus reminds His disciples, and we've heard this many times over these last few weeks, that everything that Jesus said had been given to Him by the Father. So He was speaking the Father's words, but nonetheless He was speaking the Father's words with His own authority because Jesus Himself claimed to be God Himself in the flesh. Jesus Himself revealed that He was God. He claimed and said before Abraham was, I am. He claimed the divine name for Himself there in the Gospel of John. And throughout His ministry, He showed forth His divinity. He showed forth that He was more than a mere man. 
course, that forces the church to reflect on understanding that union of natures between the divine and the human, but also that understanding how Jesus could be both God and man, but also the Father be God, and also the Holy Spirit to be truly God. That all three persons are one God that is to be worshipped, that is to be praised, that is to be followed and obeyed continually. But one thing that we, I think, sometimes trip up on is that we think of the Trinity as only a New Testament phenomenon. Because there it is so clear where you have the Father spoken of so perfectly by Jesus. You have Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, walking this earth and speaking the Word of God, who ascends up into heaven, who then sends the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into this world to enlighten believers' minds and hearts, to renew us, to bring to bear upon us the work that Christ had accomplished for us. And so we see just crystal clear the reality of the Trinity. Even at the beginning, near the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we hear of the Trinity when Jesus is baptized. The Father spoke as, the, as Jesus was baptized and poured the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Himself. And there you have all three persons of the Trinity working in accord with one another, revealed to John the Baptist, revealed to the crowds as they hear the voice of God speak and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and sending His Spirit to descend upon Him. For who is the Son but God Himself in the flesh? The one claimed by the Father as the Son must be truly God, for He can be no other. And so we tend to think of This idea of the Trinity, this understanding of the Trinity, this revelation of the Trinity being something that only happens in the New Testament. But I want us to spend some time today looking back at the Old Testament, realizing that in the Old Testament the Trinity is revealed in many mysterious ways. The Trinity shows up throughout the Old Testament. Every year when I'm thinking about this sermon, it always surprises me to go through the abundant evidence of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament, that we hear it continually, constantly, when you have the ears to hear, when you notice the little things in the text that point you to the reality that this is more than just a singular personal God, that this is a multi-personal God, that this is a God who is three and yet one. There is a complexity to how God reveals Himself in the Old Testament. He does reveal Himself as the one and only true God. There are no other gods beside Him. In Deuteronomy 4.35, He says, To you, Israel, it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is none besides Him. That's a statement that resounds throughout the Old Testament. There is no other God besides Him. There is no other. In fact, as a continual ringing, especially in the book of Isaiah, declaring that no other gods can stand before Him. God Himself stands above all others, for He is the Creator of everything. He is the uncreated One. And we hear that even in this Genesis 1 passage today. God is complex. He is unique. He is more than we can comprehend. For there, at the very beginning of the Bible... It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can't see it in our English Bibles. 
But in the Hebrew, the word for God there is Elohim. What's funny about the word Elohim is it's the plural of the word El, which is Hebrew for God. El is a name used for God. It is a description of God. It tells us that He is the divine being. But then the word Elohim is used to speak of the many other gods that exist, the so-called gods, those who would betray and blind the nations. And so you have El, as in El Shaddai, but then you also have Elohim used as a plural word for multiple gods. But here, at the very beginning of the Bible, Moses uses it to name God Himself, the one true God. Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and here we know that it is speaking of one God because the verbs tell us that. The verbs are all singular in their nature. They point to He created. Not multiple people created, but one God created the heavens and the earth. And this one God is named Elohim here. He is designated as Elohim. A complex, multi-personal God acting here at the beginning to create all things. And this happens throughout the Old Testament where Elohim is used for the one true God. And we always know, again, because the Hebrew points us to the reality of, sing- of a singular verb. It'd be like saying, they is. That doesn't work in English. And it's weird in Hebrew, too, to have Elohim created. But that is how Hebrew does it. That is how they wrote about God, that He is the one true God, and yet He is complex. He is multifaceted. There is more to Him than we can understand. But immediately in verse 2, we then have it pointed out that the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the waters. And so you have Elohim who creates, and then Elohim who dwells in the midst of that creation. You have two persons immediately being pointed out, the Creator and then the One who dwells. But how can the Spirit of God be nothing less than God Himself? So we already have these hints beginning here in Genesis 1 of that reality. That the Spirit of Elohim is One who dwells near the creation. While Elohim creates all things, He also simultaneously through the person of His Spirit dwells in the midst of that creation. But even more so, when you get to near the end of this chapter, like we heard in the creation of man, what does Elohim say? Elohim said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us. Here God immediately begins speaking of Himself in the plural. As He begins to create humanity, to create mankind, He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's a confusing statement when we don't have the concept of the Trinity, the concept of a multi-personal God running through our minds. And there are so many explanations. Some say that, oh, He's just speaking in the royal third person. You know how kings will say, oh, The king says this, we decree this, or something like that. Which doesn't work for God. I don't think that's a worthy explanation because none of the kings and none of the kings throughout the Old Testament ever speak in the third person plural like that of themselves. So why would the God of creation have this weird verbal tick to speak of himself in the third person? Others might say, oh, well, he's talking about himself and the angels that he had just created. He's looking to the angels and saying, let us make man in our image. 
That seems like a good idea, but yet it doesn't solve the problem. Because then we would be made in the image of angels as well as God. And nowhere does it say that we are made in the image of angels. Nowhere does it say that the angels are in the image of God. And so it leaves us with that conundrum of the reality of what does God mean when He says, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. It's a mystery that remains there right before our eyes continually throughout the Old Testament, being revealed more and more little by little as we go along. We get that sense that God is not a mere singular unity, that He's not merely a singular person existing before time began. Already here, we hear that God is more. He is complex. He is multifaceted. There is more to God than the singular person. You may think, but doesn't God declare that He is one? In Deuteronomy 6, 4, He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Now, does that not prove that God is only a singular person? That He says, I am one. But the context there in that passage is not pointing to the singular nature of God, but pointing to His unity in regard to being the one true God. For it goes on to speak of don't be tricked by the other gods. Don't be tricked by the gods of the peoples around you. Don't follow after them. Follow only after me and hear my voice. But even more so, that word for one is a word that doesn't mean mere singular absolute unity. It has a sense of oneness, a sense of acting in unison together, acting as one. For it gets used in Genesis 2.24 when God has given Eve to Adam. And Adam says, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall become woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right there is the very same Hebrew word for one there. There's a couple of words for one. And here's the same as what's in Deuteronomy 6.4. That oneness, two becoming one, two acting together, two being as one, though yet remaining distinct from each other. And again, it's used over in Genesis 11 at the tower, as the Tower of Babel is being constructed. It says that the people are acting as one. The people are one. There are multiple individuals, but they have what seems to be a singular unity, a singular direction, a singular desire of accomplishment. They act as one in all that they are doing. It's that same sense of oneness. Not mere individual individual unity, solitariness, but a complexity to it. One in which there are multiple persons there, and especially in Genesis 6, In Genesis 2, multiple persons acting in union with each other to accomplish something. And so there that when God says the Lord is one, He's not making a statement about this singular solitariness of Himself. But He uses a word that very often is used to speak of complexity in unity. These are all hints of the reality of the divine being, being multipersonal and complex and not merely Unitarian. But that's not enough for us to fully grasp this reality of how the Trinity is revealed in the Old Testament. 
There seems to also be three divine persons continually active throughout the Old Testament. That there are three actors that we see acting as Yahweh, claiming the name Yahweh, speaking of Yahweh as a distinct person, but yet saying, I am Yahweh as well. We hear of Yahweh, also known as Elohim, but we also hear of the angel of Yahweh and the spirit of Yahweh or the spirit of Elohim. Now what makes it confusing about the name, this angel of Yahweh, is that that word in Hebrew for angel that we translate as angel most of the time actually just merely means messenger. I kind of wish that we had just stuck with the word messenger anytime the word for angel appears in the Old Testament, we just said the messenger of God appeared and didn't let the context determine is this the angelic type messengers or is this a human messenger? Because you apparently can tell in the text when they're talking about human beings or spiritual beings. But here, that angel of Yahweh is the messenger of Yahweh who appears and acts in Yahweh's stead. In Genesis 16, he appears to Hagar after Sarah has sent her away. The angel Yahweh appears and tells her, return to your mistress. And that this angel of Yahweh then says, I will multiply your descendants. This angel of Yahweh gives a promise that only Yahweh himself can give. But he is not identified as Yahweh himself. He is called the angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh. But then what makes it amazing is then in 16.13, there in that verse 13, when Hagar responds, she says that Yahweh himself spoke to her. She treats this angel of Yahweh as Yahweh himself. But the earlier part of the passage made it clear that this was the angel of Yahweh. And so here Hagar is bringing the two together for us to see that the angel of Yahweh is as much Yahweh as Yahweh is Yahweh. In Exodus 3, when Moses goes to the burning bush, it says that the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then it says that God spoke to him. And this one speaking from the bush tells Moses to speak to the elders of Israel and to say that God appeared to him in the bush. There we again had that equating, that bringing together of the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh Himself brought together. But the passage clearly says it was the angel of Yahweh who was in the bush. But yet that one speaking in the bush says, Tell the people that God came to you in this bush and declared who He is. Even more, in Genesis 22, as we move backwards into Genesis, we see an even deeper level of this. As Abraham is ready to sacrifice his very son, the angel of Yahweh appears and he says, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your, only, your son, your only son, from me. At the beginning of the chapter, it says that God was testing Abraham. That Elohim was going to act and test, uh, test Abraham. And then there at the end, the angel of Yahweh This angel of the Lord appears and speaks and says, I know that you fear God, you fear Elohim, because you have not withheld your son from me, the angel of the Lord. That they are being brought together throughout the text over and over and over again. The angel of the Lord and Elohim or Yahweh are brought together, yet they act distinctly from one another. So often when the angel of the Lord appears, as he does continually, he appears to Samson's parents He appears to so many prophets. He appears to so many individuals in the Old Testament. 
saying and speaking for Yahweh, but then claiming the worship owed to Yahweh, claiming the promises given from Yahweh as his own promises given. And so so many passages, the angel of the Lord acts as Yahweh should act and receives the worship that only is due to the one true God, showing that there is a complexity here in the relationship between and within this angel of the Lord and Yahweh. But what of the spirit of Elohim, the spirit of Yahweh? How do we know that He is a truly divine person? In Isaiah 63, 10-12, Yahweh speaks and He says that the people have rebelled and they have grieved His Holy Spirit. But that He remembered the days of old and He asked, Yahweh asked, Where is He that is Yahweh? Where am I? But He says, Where is He who put in the midst of them, the people, His Holy Spirit? So Yahweh asks, where is Yahweh who put in the midst of the people the Holy Spirit who caused Yahweh's glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? The Spirit is the one who caused the people to come out of Egypt by bringing Yahweh's power. The Spirit is the one who acted on behalf of the people to bring them out of Egypt in this passage. The Spirit called forth the people. So the people's rebellion had grieved the Holy Spirit, which of course, grieving is something only a true person can do. Only a person with personality, with will, with ability can grieve. And here in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Yahweh, grieves and is grieved by the people's rebellion. The Spirit is equated with one who helps the people because He brought them out of Egypt, like the passage then goes on to say. That is, Yahweh who poured out the Spirit to His people And it is that very Spirit who brought Yahweh's arm to the people to go with Moses. But we know throughout Exodus it continually says it is Yahweh who is acting. It is Yahweh who is bringing the people out. And yet here in Isaiah 63, the Spirit is identified with the one who brought the people out. So you have the Spirit doing the work of Yahweh. You have the Spirit being given the works of Yahweh. The works that we know that Yahweh has done are attributed to the Spirit. And when the Spirit speaks, it is Yahweh speaking. Again, an an equating of the two. That if Yahweh speaks, then He speaks. But if the Spirit speaks, it is Yahweh speaking. The Yahweh claims the the divine prerogative to speak on behalf of God, to speak through the people. In 2 Samuel 23.2, David even says that the Spirit of Yahweh is upon him. And in that, it is God Himself who speaks to Israel. As the Spirit comes upon the people of God, He causes the people of God to say the words of God, to speak for God. So the Spirit would come down and say, I, Yahweh, say this. So often is the terminology used in the Old Testament. But one last passage to consider that I came across this week that was pointed out in a video I was watching. Isaiah 48.16 And here in this wonderful passage we have actually the whole Trinity, the Old Testament Trinity appearing. This angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and Yahweh Himself. God says, Draw near to Me and hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. So the Lord God 
and the Spirit send this one who is also God into the world to convict people, to bring people to salvation. Here you have a picture of all three persons acting. These three divine persons who are yet still one God. For the Old Testament never denies the nature of God being one, one, being one being. And so the Trinity is throughout the Old Testament when you stop and listen. When you stop and hear, it's not a New Testament doctrine. It's not a New Testament idea. It's one that is throughout the Old Testament. As you see the Spirit of Yahweh or the Spirit of Elohim act, it is as though God Himself is acting. When you hear the angel of the Lord come and speak to people, it is Yahweh Himself coming to speak. In much the same way of the New Testament, you hear God speaking, but then you hear Jesus speaking. And you hear the Holy Spirit speaking. All three persons are active in the New Testament as well as the Old. And here in Matthew 28 today, we have that final clear declaration of what the name of our God is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is so important that God is a Trinity and that we know that God is three in one and one in three. That your very entrance into the faith, the very foundation of your salvation applied to you in baptism is a moment where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, in, are invoked. You are baptized into the name of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is how important it is that we understand God is three in one. For our salvation rests upon the reality that this God claims us in baptism with His name as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His name that makes Him three in one and yet one in three. We can't escape from that reality of the complexity of God's very nature. That in His being, He is not an absolute unity of a singular person, but that He is above our comprehension, having revealed Himself. In the Old Testament, is Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord. But in the New Testament, clearly revealing Himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And calling us to worship these three who are one. To worship this one who is three. Our Christian lives depend upon the who God is in and of Himself and that He has revealed Himself this way to us. We belong to the one true God who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so may we worship Him and we rejoice in the salvation He brings to us and see how He has acted throughout the Bible, throughout creation, throughout all of time. He has acted as one in three and three in one coming to meet His people wherever they are, sending His angel to His people, His messenger who is Himself, who is truly God, pouring His Spirit upon His people to enable them to act and to live and to do and to be. But even more beautifully so, that Son, that angel of Yahweh, comes and is enfleshed. He comes and becomes a man for our sake that He might take our sin, that He might die in our place, that He might redeem us from that which has separated us from this glorious God. And so this God who is one in three and yet three in one has taken upon Himself our sin through the second person of the Trinity that we could then come and partake of the life that is evermore in that Trinity.
That life that has been there from the beginning is poured upon us to draw us up more and more into the fellowship and into knowing and the being made new always. The Trinity acts for us. The Father acts, the Son acts, and the Holy Spirit acts. All three working together as one, being truly one in nature, in, in being, in substance, that we might know salvation, that we might know life. And that's why the Trinity is important. For without it, we worship three gods. Without it, we may not have a divine Savior. But Scripture has revealed that it is one God we worship who has revealed Himself as three distinct persons who act on our behalf. And so let us rejoice in this mysterious doctrine and celebrate the work of Yahweh, celebrate the work of Jesus Christ, and celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit this day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.